the United States of America. A long-time presence in Southeast Asia, but the regional environment has changed. Political realities, climate change, digital issues, China's growing influence. Amid these myriad challenges, how will the U.S. fare? How will Southeast Asian governments respond? Join us for Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia, a podcast series by the U.S. program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. Let's begin, shall we? Welcome, everyone, to episode one of Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia. I'm Kevin an Associate Research Fellow with the U.S. Program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, or RSIS. Hi, I'm Colin, I'm the colleague of Kevin uh, at RSIS. And we will be your hosts for this inaugural episode, The Eagle and the Garuda, U.S.-Indonesia Ties in 2023. To give this episode some context, U.S.-Indonesia Ties ostensibly improved over 2022. In August 2021, Indonesian Foreign Minister Retno Masudi remarked during a meeting with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken that a new era of bilateral ties would be central to the establishment of a secure and prosperous Indo-Pacific region. Bilateral military cooperation and investments by U.S. tech giants have increased significantly, and the U.S. recently joined the Indonesia Just Energy Transition Partnership to mobilize $20 billion U.S. dollars of public and private finance to help Indonesia meet its emissions targets. However, there are limits to what Washington can and should expect from Jakarta. Indonesian leaders have stressed a neutral stance of maintaining close ties with all nations, including the US and China, and are ramping up their economic cooperation with Beijing. Jakarta has also expressed concerns about the Biden administration's promotion of democracy and human rights, and it remains to be seen how the two will navigate the sensitive area. Joining us to discuss this important topic are two distinguished academics Professor Dewi Fortuna Anwar. Research Professor at the Indonesian Institute of Sciences and Chairman of the Board of Directors at the Habibi Center in Jakarta, and Dr. Adi Priya Mariski, a Research Fellow at the Indonesia Program at RSIS. A member of the Indonesian Academy of Sciences, Professor Dewi has held numerous positions in government and academia, including as Assistant to the Vice President for Global Affairs slash International Relations and Assistant Minister slash State Secretary for Foreign Affairs during the Habibi Presidency and as a Distinguished Visiting Professor at RSIS from 2017 to 2018 as well. Professor Dewi also sits on the boards of several organizations, including the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, the Asia Society based in New York, and the Board of Trustees of Nanyang Technological University. Professor Dewi has written widely on Indonesia's democratization, foreign policy, as well as on ASEAN regional political and security issues. She obtained a BA and MA from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London and a PhD in politics from Monash University in Australia. Dr. Adi holds a PhD in international relations from Ritsumei Khan University, Japan, and an MSc in strategic studies from RSIS. His research interests include Indonesia's military transformation, civil military relations in Southeast Asia, and Indonesian politics. He is also involved in research on the Riau Islands, particularly in the areas of defense and security. Professor Dewi, Dr. Adi, thank you for joining us today. Now, if I may start by posing a question to Professor Dewi first. As you know, Singapore, where we're based, really likes talking about letter grades. We thought it might be prudent to try to use this to kickstart our discussion on US-Indonesia ties. 
So if I might ask, what letter grade would you assign to Washington for its bilateral ties with Indonesia in 2022? Okay, before I go further, I think I need to update my affiliation. The Indonesian Institute of Sciences has been incorporated in September 2021 to BRIN, Badan Research and Innovasi Nasional. So there's no more Lembaga Ilmu Pengetahuan Indonesia, now it's called the National Research and Innovation Agency. So, but, but the research center of politics remains current, yeah? So I hesitated to assign grade, you know, whether you're a killer lecturer or a softy, <laughs> but I think I'll be generous. Yeah, we should reward efforts. I will give a B++ to the grade because I've seen considerable effort. One of the most important thing is for Indonesia, you know, the, the G20 that Indonesia hosted as presidency of G20 2022 could have been derailed if there have been boycotts from the US and other G7 countries, because Indonesia insisted on the inclusivity of all G20 members and Russia was invited. But the United States and all the other, you know, friends attended at the highest level. And of course, you know, as you mentioned, there are series of meetings already. And the most important thing for Indonesia, for President Joko Widodo, is that there is actually dollar signs. You know, it still needs to be, uh, we still need to see whether it will be realized, but that commitment to the just energy transition funding as an important occur as well. So B. I see. Thank you very much. That, that is quite generous, yes. Uh, although, may I ask, what was preventing the relationship from getting an A grade? Is it necessarily about the amount of money that was committed and the, the fact that we need to see you know, the actual money put, being put on the table rather than just promised? Or were there other factors as well that weren't exactly up to standard? Well, I rarely give A to my students. <laughs> but it has to be stated from the very beginning that relations with the United States it's not monodimensional. In the United States, it's not just an Indo-Pacific power. It is a global power. It is the one and only superpower. And when we look at Indonesia-US relations, quite often, there is a gap between G2G relations, government-to-government relations, or business-to-business relations, and then people's perceptions. Uh, don't forget that Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim-majority country. And quite often, public perceptions of the United States is not really informed by the U.S. policies towards Southeast Asia or towards China. It's less about geopolitics or geosecurity. It's more about what the U.S. does in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. If you ask the men in the street, their perception of the United States is very much informed about the U.S. policy towards Israel. Indonesia and the United States stands in polar uh, opposite there. United States is a strong supporter of Israel. Indonesia is a strong supporter of Palestine from the very beginning. Every time there's conflict there, every time there's another land grab, Every time there's violence towards the Palestinians by the Israeli forces, and every time there seems to be unfair policy, you know, there will be a lot of not just anti-Israeli sentiment from Indonesia, but also anti-US. That really what damaged relations during the Trump period. And more importantly, the US policy toward the Muslim world in general. That was really damaged throughout the Trump period when Trump made it very clear that he was anti-Islam and anti-Muslims and, and openly, vocally stated his suspicions, his dislike of Muslims in general. That has changed when Biden came to power. He's made a much more conciliatory effort and people have expectations that Biden administrations will be like Obama 2.0, which is much more multilateral, much more conciliatory towards the rest of the Muslim world, you know. But it's not really there yet. Uh, there are still a lot of problems in the Middle East. And as I said, Jakarta's public perceptions is judged less about what the court does 
than what you know what the U.S. does in the Middle East and what its allies in the Middle East do. Professor Dewi, if I could jump in quickly on this, since you touch on the perceptions amongst the Indonesian populace. And then earlier you touched on the point about G20. So maybe if I could ask about the general Indonesian population perception towards the war in Ukraine and the, the role that the US plays. Do you see any similarities with the way the Indonesian population views the US role in the Middle East, for example? Well, the US role in the Middle East, there tends to be a consensus. There's the Indonesian official position of supporting Palestinian stands for Balfrian independent state with a capital in Jerusalem. On the Ukraine issue, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, public opinion is divided. There are some who believe, and I'm among them, that, that you have to see it from the perspective of international law, that a country invading another sovereign country is a violation of the UN Charter, and whatever the provocation, that is not acceptable, it has to be opposed regardless of whether you like or dislike the country's question. So whether it is United States invading Iraq, Indonesia protested against that because that is also an, you know, a violation of international law or the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But uh, there are a lot of sympathy amongst a number of Indonesian very informed opinion makers, professors, you know, pundits and, and so on, who see that there is some justification that Russia from the Soviet Union that broken down to become just a rum state of Russia and felt this feeling of encirclement with NATO expanding further and further to the east. So there is sympathy that there is a lot of narratives that a number of Indonesians accept about that Ukraine might be going to join NATO and Poland OD and so on uh, in NATO. So there is this perception that there is some justification for this. And so, in fact, some of my friends have become very strong <laughs> spokespersons <laughs> for Putin, you know. But as I said, you know, we are, we are still good friends, but we, we have very different opinions. On this. I understand the geopolitics, but I think the international law is international law. But some others in Indonesia have been very critical of the US and NATO and very sympathetic to what it sees as Russia feeling encircled. I see. Thank you very much. May I ask then, Indonesia will be the chairman of ASEAN this year, and as well, I believe, the ASEAN country coordinator for ties with the US. How might these concerns affect how Indonesia approaches its ties with the US in the year ahead? And particularly, where will the Myanmar issue fit into this in the grand scheme of things? Well, I think Indonesia and the US will probably be more on the same page about Myanmar because there's a lot of frustrations within ASEAN about the lack of progress in the five-point consensus, which, of course, you know, was agreed upon in Jakarta. And we know that there are also some differences of opinions among ASEAN member states, some who are much more conciliatory to the hunter. Now, Indonesia would agree that, you know, when you approach an intrastate conflict, there has to be a willingness to include everybody in the discussion. So I think that, you know, it is not realistic to simply push the Santa aside. But at the same time, you know, there is clearly a clear message that needs to be sent there. And ASEAN needs to have a much more coherent policy here. But I've already also stated, you know, this is not just an ASEAN problem. This is a regional problem. This is an international problem. It's a humanitarian crisis, a democratic crisis, and, and so on and so forth. And it is important that ASEAN's dialogue partners should be supportive of ASEAN's position and not take independent actions. So when dialogue partners give explicit support to the hunter, while at the same time saying that it supports ASEAN centrality, you know, there is a contradiction in terms. 
if our dialogue partners support ASEAN centrality, and then they should be together with ASEAN and work together and not pursue contradictory policies. And here, I hope that the United States and ASEAN with Indonesian chairmanship will join also the, the wider civil society. In the Indonesian civil society is very strong, who want you know, to send a clear message of what is tolerable, what is acceptable and not, not acceptable for a member of ASEAN uh, uh, behavior. So in this case, we like to see that it will be good partnership uh, with the U.S. And U.S. has the, the wherewithal to carry both the carrot and stick policy here. Thank you very much. May I ask, what would you see as the most promising areas for cooperation between Jakarta and Washington in 2023? I note that at the end of last year, there were a few partnerships that were launched, as, such as well, the one I mentioned just now, the Just Energy Transition Partnership. Would renewable energy and EVs be a major area for cooperation going ahead in the year? Yeah, energy transition is one of Indonesia's priorities in G20 summit. It's very, very important and it needs a lot of capital investment and technological investment there, not just to find renewable energy, but also to ensure that those will be suffering from loss of livelihood, those who are, who are working in fossil fuels industries, in coals and so on, they also need to be retrained you know, as new technology, you know, so there's a lot of aspect there. And there's also the society as a whole that needs to be accessible to, uh, to everyone. And Indonesians should not only just be consumers of imported technologies, but should also be making a roadway into innovations and so on. So there's a lot of things that Indonesia can work with, with the U.S. here. The U.S. is lagging behind in terms of visible investment in the eyes of the public. Because a lot of investment is in either, if it's not mining, it's in private sector. It's not in the shapes of huge infrastructure projects. I think it, there's still a lot of expectations towards the end of the Trump administration. There was this talk about quality infrastructure investment and so on. And then nothing happened. But I think that there's probably some areas where not necessarily huge buildings, but other kinds of infrastructure development in which the U.S. technology would be useful. So Indonesia, I think, is very far behind in our competitiveness in terms of R&D research and development. And this, you know, the, the U.S. has a lot to offer. In the past, a lot of Indonesian students got scholarships in the U.S. and studied in the U.S. And now the U.S. is not necessarily the top favorite anymore. And, and Indonesia also has its own funding agency, you know, for, for scholarships. But if the U.S. is to offer more in terms of this long-term, what you might call social-cultural investment, human resources among the younger generation, uh, it would pay off uh, towards the end. Because now um, there are not that many Indonesian graduates. Both of my parents graduated from the United States, but among the younger generation, there are fewer and fewer graduates from the U.S. And I think that, you know, we have more choices now, but this is an investment in, in human resources will pay off. Because if you don't know the, the country well, you do not really feel that close to it. Of course, in the military, defense, technology, and so on, Indonesia continues to look to the U.S. as one of the procurement sources. But, you know, Indonesia would like to diversify its sources of military procurement. But a lot of training, you know, we, uh, Garuda Shield exercises have grown and grown bigger, including, you know, to become the super shield, including other countries as well. So in this area, I think it's on the right track. But there are, in the comprehensive and strategic partnership, there's a slew of activities in all branches, economic, social, cultural, technology, defense, security, maritime. I think that, you know, even if just ticking the box, there'll be a lot of them. But I would suggest that in order to capture public imagination, there should be something big. People are fixated with the Jakarta, Bandung, Chinese railway track. There are many other investments, but it's very visible. So if there is something that could actually be visible, that captures people's imagination, maybe this just energy transition, there will be something worthwhile.
But last but not least, of course, Indonesia is a strong supporter of an inclusive regional architecture centered on ASEAN. Now, while all the dialect partners fail at service, you know, that seems to be the activities now seem to be much more exclusive, you know, exclusive regional architecture, not inclusive regional architecture, which is balancing against China rather than trying, you know, to, to work with China. Indonesia is not in a position to say the US and Australia, the UK cannot do AUKUS, but there are some effort that, that needs to be made that the desire to have an inclusive regional architecture and the desire to respect this ASEAN centrality should not be too blatantly undermined by activities you know, that would actually undermine the, the position of the ASEAN. Thank you very much. If I could pivot to Dr. Adi right now to ask you a few questions about the security situation facing US-Indonesia ties. So I'd like to ask you the same question that we asked Professor Dewi at the start. In hindsight, what letter grade would you assign to Washington for its bilateral ties with Indonesia in 2022? Why do you think so? And what were the most notable developments or missed opportunities during this time? Okay, thank you. Okay, assigning a letter grade is always difficult for me. So I will start like the US-Indonesia relation in 2022. It's good, but it's not excellent. Certainly, there are some room for improvements. But the thing is, I will say it is hard for both to fulfill those room for improvements. Let's say we can put like three parameters in the US-Indonesia relations. I will say from the Indonesia point of view, we, we can put that Indonesia's interest and then Indonesia's independence and then about regional stability. These three be the realistic. Let's start one by one. Indonesia's interest, infrastructure development is uh, the regime's interest, uh, Jokowi's focus. It's great. Uh, the US has uh, supported it. And COVID vaccination, Pfizer, uh, Moderna. Not to mention also uh, Indonesian military interest to develop joint doctor exercise, which actually has been helped by the existence of the Super Garuda Shield, upgraded versions of Garuda Shield that Team uh, Prof. Dewi has mentioned before. And Indonesia independency, I will say that the free and policy, free and active policy remains intact. And then the third one, uh, regional stability, uh, this is the problem. The US also is now in the strategic competition with the Chinese. No doubt about it. There are some maneuvers there. And then we have the Quad, we have the AUKUS and so on. This could potentially establish the regions not to mention Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And this will be the problematic area for the, the Indonesia and US relation, which actually it's be hard for the two to gain some advantage to, to improve it. And I will say that in, in terms of relations between the two, the, the US engagement to Indonesia will be actually limited by two factors from the Indonesian side. First, of course, the ideological factor. It will be hard for Indonesia to fully engage the US in the extreme ways, take sides in the U.S. strategic competition against China, it will be hard from the Indonesian point of view because Indonesia adopts a free and active foreign policy. And secondly, about the structural factor of Indonesia itself. I'm talking about the infrastructure that Indonesia has, for example, to absorb the investment from the U.S. In comparison to other countries like Singapore and the other, it will be hard to accept to absorb all the U.S. investment. And not to mention also about the problem of human resource and then also on the other field, let's say the defense uh, investment. It's also about Indonesia's military infrastructure to also absorb it and also the Indonesia's military capability itself that it's still developed. And I'll say it will be the same with Prof. Dewi. I think it's going to be B+, but like I said, it's good, but it's not excellent. There are some room for improvements, but I hardly tell that the two countries can feel that room for improvements. And for the notable developments, 
first of course the Super Garuda Shield. I'm actually really really excited because it's an opportunity for the Indonesian military to to improve its joint doctrine capability and the one that already uh, discussed before US support to ener- Indonesian energy issues. Uh, But despite this notable development, there are also some uh, missed opportunities. I would like to cite this report from the American Chambers of Commerce in Indonesia. It's actually about investment in non-Java. So pretty much the U.S. investment that is actually also not that fast is actually concentrated heavily in Java. So outer Java, I mean, receive an almost insignificant amount of the U.S. investment. That's one. And then about tech investment, we know now there's the ongoing or maybe like brewing tech presence or uh, tech competitions within uh, the US and China. But it's still hardly for Indonesia uh, to absorb or to, to gain the advantage from these uh, tech competitions. And also about the medical investment as well. Yes, Indonesia has been, you know, again, uh, gained the access to build its own vaccine, the Indofarm, by cooperations between uh, Biopharma. and also the uh, one of the U.S. schools, Baylor College of Medicine. But for pharmaceutical, medical device, healthcare, those are the areas that actually not yet touched by the investment or the cooperation. And lastly, defense. There will be the F-15 deal, but we are still waiting from the confirmation from the Indonesian side. But again, it's the questions about the transfer of technology. Will the procurement also give some kind of like leverage on the transfer of technology side, or is it going to be just like the, the usual deal? Just uh, buying the things and that's it. I guess I will stop there for you. Thanks so much. If I could be uh, slightly provocative a little to ask this question, if in the event of a Taiwan Strait contingency or crisis and the U.S. approaches Indonesia for any type of assistance that we could you know, talk about or, or imagine, what would you see as the, in this such hypothetical scenario, how do you see Indonesia react? to the, the U.S. and to the Taiwan Strait conflict? Okay, I will say two scenarios, but I don't think it will involve the U.S. deeply. First, of course, the bilateral channel. Indonesia will kind of like try to lobby what conflicting parties and so on, try to kind of like cool down the situations. And secondly, it will be through the ASEAN channel. I still don't believe that Indonesia will take side in these strategic competitions. And probably those two scenarios will be the most uh, plausible for me. ASEAN channel and bilateral channels. If I could be slightly more explicit in putting forth a scenario, it's because uh, we could imagine that if there is going to be a Taiwan Strait conflict, then certainly U.S. Uh, military will have uh, every interest to traverse through Southeast Asian waters. And obviously because Indonesian archipelago is right in between that, first from the Indian Ocean up to the Pacific in order to cover the southern flank. or to prevent itself from being outflanked by China. And it means that the key waterways through Indonesia, like the Makassar Strait, the uh, Ombaiwetara Strait, for example. So all these could certainly come into interest. And, and one we imagine that US military will be interested in transiting their submarines or some of their key assets through the area. So in this scenario, what could be Indonesia's options, if I could ask? It's going to be a very, very, very delicate matter. There's three ferries, I think. Definitely, you are talking about archipelagic sea lanes. That's going to be the passage for the ships, submarines, and so on. But it's going to be hard for Indonesia. First, if you close the archipelagic sea lanes, internationally or unintentionally, you will be seen as a belligerent, you know. 
either from the US side or from the from the Chinese side or the competing parties. Definitely, it's gonna be very very hard uh, for Indonesia. So I will say that Indonesia will try to find an excuse to close the archipelago sea lines. Something that Indonesia will try to find a middle way. I will say like some scenarios maybe like okay we're gonna use it the archipelagic lands for a military exercise so it will be closed for one month. But if you said that okay I will not uh, let through all the US or the Chinese or and so on the, the coalitions to use this archipelagic land you'll be seen as a belligerent of the conflicts, and this will not be good and it's it's kind of like will undermine. Indonesia's foreign policy as well. I also tend to agree. I think this is a scenario that is rather unimaginable. And in fact, I believe Singapore confronts quite similar situation. Given our proximity to the key sea lines of communications, and given that we are hosting military facilities for the US, so I think in a way we see some convergences in this sort of very difficult situation uh, between Singapore and Indonesia. But I thought this is a a question to ask hypothetically. We just hope that we don't actually have to come into that situation at all. If I might open the question to both of our distinguished speakers, then what was Jakarta doing to balance its ties between Beijing and Washington, and how? How do you see these efforts to navigate us in the middle half playing out for the rest of 2023? If I could open the floor to both the speakers. As, as you know, I've just um, my paper is just out about Indonesia's hedging policy. <laughs> so uh, it's not balancing, it's hedging, which is maximizing benefits and mitigating risk, but also underlined by Indonesia's free and active foreign policy. But at the same time, the keyword is active. So it's not just being neutral and passive. At the bilateral level, as you know, Indonesia has signed comprehensive strategic partnerships with all of the salient powers. It has comprehensive strategic partnership with Beijing, with, with Washington, with New Delhi, with Canberra, with Japan, with everyone that matters. Yes, this omnidirectional foreign policies, or Evan Lexman said, strategic equidistance. That's always been the DNA of Indonesia's foreign policy, and actually we only have the luxury in the post-Cold War period to do that where China actually has something to offer so that you know Indonesia would be willing to engage closely with China while also engaging with other countries and not becoming too dependent on other and any other countries. And then of course, you know, through, through ASEAN, Professor Kahe would say, you know, institutional internal balancing. So bringing everybody in and achieving what you might call dynamic equilibrium. There are a lot of arrows in our goals, trying to engage everybody, but making sure that you do not become too dependent on anyone. And coming to that question, you know, that hypothetical question, it will be very hard. Our effort will be, you know, to make sure that this inclusive regional architecture is precisely designed to prevent that open conflict to happen, whether it is in the South China Sea or whether it is uh, uh, the Taiwan Straits. But if push comes to shock, I don't know whether I uh, add you get. If you look at Indonesia's relations now, with Beijing, it's mostly economic. With the U.S., it's mostly security. Indonesia will not want to be aligned with the U.S., because it is in violations of uh, Indonesia's foreign policy, and Indonesia has always been consistent with a one-China policy. But I doubt Jakarta would endorse a violent military takeover of Taiwan, regardless of the support of you know, a one-China policy. So there will be a lot of very, very difficult discussions within ASEAN and among the Indonesian policymakers. But I think that you know, at the end of the day, if there is a conflict, which we hope that if not, you know, there is no easy answer. 
but Indonesia will abide by UNCLOS. Thank you. Dr. Adi, do you have any thoughts? I mean, maybe slightly different with uh, uh, Prof. Dewi here, but overall, I mean, like Indonesia in terms of uh, conflicts, great power conflict, it always seems like sitting on the fence and still kind of like uh, wait and see about what will happen next. And Indonesia always try it at its best to avoid to be engaged in all those conflicts. And because, you know, uh, Indonesia as a middle power itself, it has a limited capability when, when engaging with a great powers even, and including in the great power conflicts. And Indonesia will try to find kind of like a multilateral solutions. And uh, I would say that uh, the ASEAN channel would be one of the, the great ways to engage, to face the challenge that resulted from the great power competitions, and particularly with the current one. I see. Thank you very much. In that case, I'd like to look ahead to 2023 as a whole. Again, I would like to pose this question to both of our speakers. With these topics that we discussed in mind, how would you evaluate the prospects for US-Indonesia ties looking ahead into 2023? Would it be better than 2022? About the same? Maybe slightly worse? And how would it evolve from here? Maybe I'll give Adi a chance to give the grade first. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Professor. So if I would like to say that, I will still the same. I will say it It can be good, but it cannot be excellent because there are there will be some uh, limitations from within Indonesia itself. I need to cite some uh, table events that will happen or already happening in 2023. First of all, of course, ASEAN chairmanship. Indonesia needs U.S. support. Well, at least the U.S. support towards the mechanism in ASEAN or uh, the ASEAN what ASEAN proposed, including with the, the, with the Myanmar issue. So ensuring that the U.S. supports ASEAN centrality and ASEAN mechanism will be one of the key for uh, U.S.-Indonesia relations. And the other thing is also about what happen, what's happening in Indonesia's domestic. It's going to be the election years. Uh, the campaign will start in uh, 2023. Here, that's something that we need to underline that during this election, usually politicians will be more cautious and try to play safe. So we may see kind of like more insular foreign policy during this year. And not to mention that, I think Budewi already mentioned about the, the case of uh, Palestine. Uh, oh, that's the catalyst. <laughs> and also about this nationalism uh, element that actually these uh, politicians can cultivate during the, the election campaign. And if suddenly there is a problem in the Middle East, the Palestine problem, and the U.S. won't act like the Indonesians hope, so it's going to be a problem, an obstacle in the Indonesia-U.S. Uh, relations. I don't think we can assign much higher grade, although I would hope that I could give an A- four, so that it will be give them an incentive. Firstly, to ensure that ASEAN, the general expectation, not just the Indonesian expectations of ASEAN expectations, there seems to be a lot of vested interest in Indonesia's chairmanship of ASEAN, as if Indonesia could wave a, a wand and, and solve all of the problems within ASEAN. That is not possible, but there is expectation that there'll be more rather than less that ASEAN can do. Because there is this, a lot of pressure on Indonesia after G20. You know, you're managed to pull the rabbit out of hat, you know, a very difficult situation and, and it came out okay. And not just in terms of the consensus about coming up with a joint declaration, but also some concrete deliverables. So a lot of people say, okay, now can Indonesia do the same trick again when it comes to the ASEAN chairmanship? Uh, with Myanmar issue, with increasing polarization within ASEAN itself, with the heightening geopolitical tension and so on, and with still the code of conduct on the South China Sea is still not done yet. So there's a lot of expectations. 
And here, Indonesia will need all the help that it can from its dialogue partners. And here, the U.S. supporting Indonesia here and supporting ASEAN would go a long way to enhance the perceptions. Remember, a few years ago, during the Trump administration, the perceptions of Indonesia towards China and towards the United States were equally bad. So suspicions of China were at over 70%. Suspicions of the U.S. were also at 70%. Now that suspicion of China had gone up, at the same time, perception of China's importance has also gone up, both in terms of economics and security. But suspicions of the U.S. have gone down. But as you know, the perception of the importance of the U.S., both economy and security, still lagging far behind. So this is, this is the area of opportunities, you know, to enhance that expectations. And I think that it's just a matter of political commitment and the willingness to follow through. And of course, touch wood, that nothing untoward happens in the Middle East. Because if something were to happen again, you know, extreme visible violence, which appears TV screens every day, towards the Palestinians, for example, that would really sour. Or another invasion, unilateral invasion or action by the US against a fellow Muslim country, you know, that, that would really, really damage the mood as well. But I agree with Adi that it will be election year. I expect that not except for the foreign ministry and those who care about ASEAN, you know, most of the politicians will be focused more on getting their political party ready for the campaign and also the various contenders for the presidency. Uh, but also at this time, they all want to be on the good side of the external powers. Even those who are overly critical of the United States, for example, you know, there is also this quite amusing phenomena that endorsement or support from the international community is also very important, particularly also from, from, from the US. So they will want to be seen at one hand, to be seen to be nationalist and not to be driven by the dictates of big powers. But at the same time, this desire to be approved by them, that is some of the dilemma of a newly independent country. If I could pose probably the final question to both speakers, Professor Dewi and Adi, is based on what we discussed earlier and the prognosis that you have given, the outlook that you have provided uh, going forward with respect to the ties between Indonesia and US, then shifting gear slightly on Indonesia's ASEAN chairmanship, then given, of course, the domestic constraints and the evolving geopolitics and what's going on around us, then what do you see will be the main approach undertaken by Indonesia for this chairmanship of ASEAN uh, this time? I think there is the desire for tough love. ASEAN cannot do business as usual. We need to call a spade a spade. And I think that there are, you know, with the willingness of ASEAN to leave an empty chair for Myanmar, I think that is only a measure of that, uh, that willingness to take a firm stance. Uh, but there's increasing pressure also on the Indonesian government to review the ASEAN Charter. This is long overdue because the lack of a provision within the Charter to deal with a non-compliant member, every organization, every club has a regulation. If you're a university, if students cheat, you have a mean, you know, there are measures of dealing with that. If you do plagiarism, you cheat in exams. And so. so there have to be measures. And we are serious about making ASEAN an effective organization that we need to revisit the, the, uh, the Charter. And we need to be serious about putting the new values in the Charter, about democracy and human rights, rule of law, which is now seems to be more violated against than rather than being carried out. And I think that if we are serious about developing an ASEAN community moving forward, we have to be consistent with the spirit 
of the ASEAN Charter, not just with the letters written in the ASEAN Charter. You know, the spirit of the ASEAN Charter is to reform ASEAN, to make it into a progressive organization that really cares about people, people-centered, people-driven, you know, people-oriented. Now it's increasingly uncaring about that respect. The voice of the general public is less listened to in a number of countries uh, rather than, you know, so we are not looking at progress, we are looking at aggression. So I think there will be serious pressure on the Indonesian government also to think about ASEAN as an organization, not just about Myanmar and about all the geopolitics and geoeconomics issues. If I may add uh, quickly, there are two things here. First, Indonesia ASEAN agenda and Indonesia own agenda in ASEAN. I think for the first one, Budewi has expanded. And for the second one, it's actually start from Indonesia's own domestic aspiration, Indonesia's own interest here. So it's actually related with the, the, the regime's uh, agenda for Jokowi himself. It's actually someone that really cares about economics, someone that really believes that foreign policy actually needs to produce a tangible or some tangible outcomes, not only something that just normative, something that must be filled by the people. And this is going to be uh, very influential for Indonesia's own agenda in ASEAN. For example, it's going to be more in Indonesia's own economic ambitions will be kind of like, like it or not, will be, Indonesia will try to insert it in the ASEAN. We'll try to use uh, ASEAN as a forum to achieve it. And I still remember I think, uh, what Minister Arlangga Hartato said when he came here to Singapore to give a lecture. One of his agenda is actually to promote something like additional uh, staple food in ASEAN. So it's actually uh, related with Indonesia's own economic ambitions as well. So something that can actually fuel Indonesian economy or kind of like safeguard Indonesian economy. So we may also see this kind of trend besides, of course, Indonesia's uh, ASEAN agenda that Budewi has mentioned. So we have these two agenda of Indonesia for its uh, chairmanship. Thank you very much, Professor Dewi, Dr. Adi. If I might just sum up the conversation that we've had briefly. So there are many potential areas for cooperation and improvement in the US-Indonesia relationship going into 2023. There's a lot of promise. There are areas, definitely a lot of areas that they can work on. But at the same time, there's a need for something a bit more tangible, something that can capture the public imagination, as Professor Dewey mentioned. There are also a lot of both external and internal concerns, external concerning possible developments in the Middle East, as well as issues with regards to, say, U.S. investment being mainly concentrated in Java or the relative failure to get U.S. tech companies to invest more in Indonesia that might otherwise present some stumbling blocks to the relationship as well. However, on the whole, I would, as we discussed here, the outlook for the U.S.-Indonesia ties in 2023 looks rather promising. Well then. I think we've discussed quite a lot. Thank you very much, Professor Dewi and Dr. Adi for your very interesting insights. And we hope to hear more from you in the future. Professor Dewi, thank you so much. And Adi, thank you so much for joining us this time. Hope to see you again. Bye-bye. Thank you.